We are in the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings and just looking at how God delivers his people. So if you have your, your Bibles there with you, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 7 or look on your iPad in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Uh, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is the English Standard Version. Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I was listening to um, John Stossel on Fox News the other night. And he had a lady on there um, who was originally from North Korea and uh, had been imprisoned and enslaved and her and her mother decided to try to escape, and they made their way to China, where she was sold into sex, sexual slavery. And she was able, after some months or a year or two of that, to escape and make her way to South Korea. And there she realized what freedom was. And as uh, Stossel interviewed this young lady, um, she talked about how that she didn't realize you could choose your own favorite colors. Or you could read a book without somebody threatening to kill you if it's the wrong book. And she said what was really incredible was when she came to America and realized you could travel without restrictions. And uh, it stunned Stossel when she made this statement. In order to enjoy freedom, everything I've gone through, I'd go through again. He was stunned by that. He said, you mean like starvation, imprisonment, sexual slavery? You'd go through all that just to be free? She said, yes. Sometimes we here in the U.S., don't realize what we have. We gather here to worship, the freedom to worship, and that is the greatest freedom. What God is doing in Exodus is setting his people free, free in every sense of the word. There's a verse um, in Exodus 5 verse 1 that where the message to Pharaoh in the beginning was, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast with me in the wilderness. I want you to let them go because we're going to all go out and eat. (laughs) You know, in the Garden of Eden, that's what Adam lost, is being able to eat freely of every tree in the garden walking with God while he's doing it. And so when, when God says, let my people go, that they may hold a feast, a festival, we're going to eat together and celebrate and 
be happy. Now, this is what God is doing in the book of Exodus. And you'll notice that he says, uh, I'm going to multiply my signs, Exodus uh, 7, verse 3, and my wonders in the land of Egypt. See, the land of Egypt, even though it was the strongest military on the face of the earth at that time, it was full of idols. And these idols had to be humiliated. Look at the verse uh, 5. Um, Verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They'll know I'm the Lord. Exodus 12, verse 12, God says, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. I'm going to bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. And what the ten plagues are, uh, I mean, God could have got them out immediately if he had wanted to, but he wanted to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. One of the gods of Egypt was the Nile River. Uh, They don't get rain in Egypt. And so to grow a harvest, the Nile every spring has to overflow its banks. And then they irrigate that and And uh, that's the way they get the harvest. So they viewed the Nile River as the source of life. And so the first plague is when God turns it to blood. The sign of death. It was a plague upon the God of the Nile River. Another uh, plague that came was the plague that came upon the the people by frogs. Did you know that they worship frogs in Egypt? Um, give me the, uh, give me that picture. Yeah, this is, these are some uh, archaeological findings uh, from Egypt. The, 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 the god or goddess that they worship had a woman's body and a frog's face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beauty queen here. And, uh, and over here is another example. And I don't know what the two knives are, but these are, these are things, these are indications of the worship of the, the frog god Heket. Heket. So, so what he says is, this is the uh, second plague. He says in chapter 8, Verse 2, if you refuse to let them go, I'll plague all your country with frogs. They will be a plague to you. The Nile will swarm with them, and they will come into your house and into your bedroom. Now, there's a way to get a good night's rest. They will be in your bedroom, on your bed, and in your houses, in your ovens, and in your bowls. So they got sick of that God pretty quick. Another uh, god that they worshipped was the land of Egypt. They, they believed Egypt was holy land. To the, to the Egyptians, the Egyptians had uh, a view of Egypt which was sacred. So what did God do in the third plague? He turned the dust into gnats. And so he put a plague or a judgment 
on that God. Now you can go through the plagues and every single plague is an execution of a judgment against a particular idol that they had in the land of Egypt. Um, They even worshipped cats. Oh yeah. Look at the, here's the cat. Uh, It's Bastet. This was the cat god in ancient Egypt. Is there? Give me the next one up. Is there a? Is there a picture of a woman worshiping a cat? Okay, maybe not. No, that's the snake. Forget that. Go back. <laughs> but when I read that, I thought, worshiping cats? How low can you go? <laughs> I could. Have you ever wondered why a cat has this arrogance about it? I think I know that they have read history. I'm a god. <laughs> but in 1888, in a village in Egypt, they discovered 80,000 cat mummies where they had worshipped all these cats. There's, uh, even when they came out of Egypt and they worshipped the golden calf, you remember that? That was the golden, the calf was an object of worship in ancient Egypt. And they viewed it as a reincarnation of some god. And so they would worship cows and calves and ox and bulls. Uh, and we're not used to this in America, but uh, we had a missionary from India one time who came and uh, he was telling the story about his work there. And he said that one day a car hit. Um, a cow. Uh, this was in our day. And uh, the man was injured and the cow was laying on the side of the road and they, the ambulance came and took the cow. <laughs> really? <laughs> because the cow was a god. The cow was sacred. Man was low. But one of the things that God does is, He says in Exodus 3, I am come down to you. I am, I am here to level things. I am here to raise that which is supposed to be elevated. And I am here to put down that which is supposed to be put down. I am here to make things what they should be. Here are, here are my people, my family, as slaves, so I'm going to set them free. And here is Pharaoh being worshipped, so I'm going to bring him down. This is what God does when he comes. His kingdom presses in, and everything becomes what it is in reality. Amen. This is uh, why I think that in World War II, one of the things that the United States required of the Japanese when they had defeated them in World War II was that the emperor give up his claims to divinity. The emperor of Japan was said to be divine, and one of the things that they did is, if, you're, if, if we defeated you, then let's make it a point in the new constitution of Japan that you will not call yourself God anymore. <laughs> I think that's fair. So God has come down to do more than just set the people free. He's come down to destroy the gods, destroy the idols, and to get them out. 
deliberately, methodically, but inevitably, God will deliver us from bondage to idols. Oh, and I want him to. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So what are the obstacles here that, that we've run into now? Let me just uh, mention these three, three obstacles. One is to get his people out, God must deal with the gods of Egypt. He must humiliate them. The presence of idols was an obstacle. And so one by one he goes in and he shows his people and the Egyptians. He's the Lord. That these other gods are just that. They are repulsive and repugnant. And you should turn to them, to him from the creation to the creator. So that was obstacle number one is their attachment to idols. Obstacle number two was the inability of the servants to help. Look at uh, chapter 7 once again. And we'll just walk through this. But he's... He's showing them that he's the Lord. That's in chapter 7 and verse 5. And then notice what he says in chapter 7, verse 6. Here's a second obstacle. Moses and Aaron did so. They did as the Lord commanded. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So here's obstacle number two, and that is the inability of people to actually help you. Well, I know that sometimes people can encourage you and sometimes they can help you if God helps them to help you. But have you ever noticed that sometimes God will kind of kick the props out from under us and, and people do not mean what they used to mean. Their significance fades and where the sermon used to help, it don't help. And where the encouragement used to help, it's not there. Where the finances, somebody would help us financially, now that's dried up. And so little by little, God brings us to himself. So it's just him. Obstacle number two is the inability of others. Here is Moses. He's 80. And it says... In Deuteronomy 34, 7, that he was 120 when he died. So he was in Egypt 40 years as a kind of a, a Pharaoh's adopted son. Then he fled Egypt and went to Midian for 40 years. And there he was a nobody. And now he's back at 80 years of age and he's going to spend the next 40 years, the last third of his life, leading the people of God to freedom. So somebody said there's three stages of Moses' life when he thought he was somebody, then the next 40 years when he found out he was nobody, and then the next 40 years when he said, when he found out that God is everything and can do anything so that none of that matters anyway. So here's, here's a third obstacle. It's the obstacle that I referred to as the power of Satan. Look at verse 9. When Pharaoh says to you, to Moses and Aaron, Exodus 7, 9, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded, and he cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, now, give me the one with um, the... By the way, the word uh, serpent there is tanim, which means a huge reptile. Um, when God first called Moses, remember he told him to throw down his staff? This is in Exodus chapter 4. And verse 2, the Lord said, what is in your hand, Moses? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it and it became a serpent. Now that's Nahash. That is the Hebrew word for a snake. But over here in chapter 7, when he says, throw down your staff and it became a serpent, chapter 7, verse 10, that's Tanim, which is a little different. It's, it's like... Uh, well, one, one guy, uh, commentary is about that thick, uh, named Riken, and he says it could be translated as crocodile. I mean, when, when, when Moses threw his staff down, it wasn't just a little garden snake coming out. This was a huge reptile in the middle of the room. And in Ezekiel 32, verse 2, it's translated as dragon. <laughs> so when Moses put and Aaron throw their... Uh, staff down, suddenly there appears this huge reptile of some sort. And it says in verse 12, each man cast down his staff, they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed theirs. Just swallowed it up. So the the thing that you have here is, uh, and uh, give me the one with um, the worship of you can see the serpent. I think this is King Tut, uh, an Egyptian pharaoh around 1300-1400 B.C. And you can see the serpent on top. Small. Give me the next one up. Here's where they're worshiping a serpent, down in front of the cobra. And so when, pharaoh, when Moses and Aaron come in with this huge reptile creature swallowing up all of their serpents then God is saying, my power swallows up their power. Victory in Jesus. Amen. Now, here's a couple of things I would say to you about, about this. But one of the things is, there's, you're dealing with the power of Satan. Now, some people have thought that maybe when uh, it says in verse 11, Exodus seven eleven. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers and, they, and the magicians, and they did the same thing with their sacred arts, secret arts. Now, some have thought that that was just trickery. But I don't get that impression here. When, the, when Pharaoh's servants threw their staff down, it became a serpent also. But then Moses is swallowed up theirs. And so I think there is satanic opposition to the freedom and deliverance of God's people here. That's one of the obstacles you have to keep in mind. Satan does not want you free. And he does not want you in Christ. And he does not want you walking with God. And uh, just a couple of things here I want to say about this. One is, I think they did have miracles, verse 12 each man cast down his staff, they became serpents. I think there's actually a supernatural uh, resistance here from the enemy. 
Um, Satan can do miracles, but uh, you, you get this, for example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. So you got to be careful with miracles as such. Satan can do miracles. What you want to love and follow is not a miracle, but the truth. Amen. So sometimes miracles can come and confirm it, but don't, don't put truth with a miracle. Put the miracle with the truth. Make truth central. Now, here's, here's the way you can be sure you won't be led astray by miracles. And that is if you love truth. See, some people, they don't take their Bibles. They don't follow up with Scripture. They just go by if something is wonderful and some sign or some miracle happens. Don't go by that. Go by Scripture. Judge it by Scripture. Um, listen to this verse. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. I think we have this on the screen. But this is a remarkable verse. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Notice that. The... Uh, Satan comes with all kinds of power and false signs and wonders. And the people who follow it are those who refuse to love truth. So what does God do? God gives them strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. It's like, okay, you want to believe what is false? No matter what it is, I'll give it over. I'll give you over to it. So, but who, who is turned over to that? Those who don't love truth. Just, so it, just tell me what is true. Help me, get me on the path to what is true. No matter what the Supreme Court says or what the majority says or what is politically correct, but just I want to know what is true. Even if, if what I believed about God for many years, if what my parents and grandparents taught me about God, even if that's wrong, I want to know what is truth. Now that will keep you safe. And it'll keep you from being led astray if, some, if there's some miracle comes along that's performed and takes you and, and moves you, seduces you away from the Scripture. So be careful with miracles. One other quick thing I would say on this is that we learn from this little episode here of the snake, the serpent swallowing up their serpents, that God gives victory over the devil. Just as the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptian army and death swallows up, or resurrection swallows up death and victory in 1 Corinthians 15, so uh, Christ's victory swallows up uh, Satan when he tries to stop us. Now, uh, I want to give you this little story or this little illustration before I go, but I had a verse there. See if you can pull that up. Uh, Colossians 2.14. I think it's right at the, at the beginning. Colossians 2.14. 
Um, this is how, this is the great cancellation. This is the great summary of what God is doing in Exodus. He's humiliating the gods. And it's, it's kind of what Christ did at the cross. He, it says that he went and he canceled the record of debt that was against us. And in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame. Talking about evil spirits. Satan thought he, he had had sway in humanity for a long time. He could accuse and he, and he was right. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was such an effective death and substitution and atonement on our behalf before God that Satan was humiliated. In fact, it says he disarmed them and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. Suppose I was actually in a coffee shop uh, one day this week. There was a shocker. Um, and uh, there was one person working early in the morning. And uh, people would come in and they would say, uh, so, you're working by yourself. And the lady would say, I am, but I'm not supposed to. And then she would talk about this person who's supposed to be there. And now, put yourself in the lady's place who's supposed to be there. You're an hour late. It's busy. And I could just see her walking in. And I actually did see her walking in. And... <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, I could envision it before she actually walked in. She's going to come in. She's going to be so embarrassed. And she's going to have her head down. And she's going to be ready to hear it from the employee who's been by herself. Right? And so here she comes. That is the way Satan has done us all our life. In history. But now suppose this. Suppose that this lady comes in. She's an hour late. And she says, she starts getting the criticism. Where have you been? I've been here by myself. She said, oh, this is not my day to work. Check the schedule. And sure enough, she goes over, checks the schedule, and she's right. The schedule says this lady doesn't even supposed to be there. She just came in to get coffee. Changing of the category. Now who's embarrassed? Now this is what Satan, this is what has happened to Satan. God has canceled all of the legal demands with all its humiliating failures and placed it on Jesus Christ. And so now Satan is embarrassed and humiliated because he has nothing to say. This is what he's done. This is what God is doing in Exodus. He's humiliating the gods of Egypt. God loves to put down the false idols and raise up the true Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, there are obstacles, but he's determined to get us free. It may take him a while as he methodically, deliberately works through the process, but we'll get there.
And I'm so happy God is faithful in doing this for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today that you are faithful, you are a deliverer, and we look to you today to set captives free through Jesus Christ. We thank you that on Jesus the debts have paid and our crimes are canceled and our names recorded in a different category. We praise you for that today and we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.